Friends, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Hebrews. I want to read uh, Hebrews 4. We'll break into the chapter at verse 9. We'll read through to the, uh, the end of the chapter. Give you uh, time to find that portion of uh, God's Word. So, Hebrews 4, verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen. Let's turn to Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 and breaking into this chapter at verse 14. Second Timothy 3 verse 14, this is the word of the living God. Let us hear God's word. Verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. So read God's word. And friends, doesn't it seem like a lifetime ago that we were in Second Timothy chapter 3, looking at uh, Scripture being sufficient for salvation and Scripture being sufficient for transformation. And the third point, Scripture being sufficient for proclamation, well, we're still to come to that, and we'll reach it in a, in a couple of weeks, I guess. But it's always helpful to recap on what's gone before uh, in any series, and that is no less the case uh, 10 weeks after the break 
from Second uh, Timothy three. I think it was the tw- uh, somewhere around about the nineteenth of October thereabouts, nineteenth uh, of November. It was sorry we were last in this portion of scripture. Um, but if you remember on introducing uh, this idea of scripture being sufficient for transformation, I said this great summary statement on the part of the Apostle Paul is showing that the Bible is absolutely essential to both maturity and Christian usefulness. Now he is not informing Timothy of the fact that the scripture is inspired. That wasn't in any doubt in Timothy's mind. Instead he is reminding Timothy that the basis of the profitableness of scripture lies in its inspiration. The reason he says that uh, you can use this book and the way that you use this book is because of the nature of the book. This book is unlike any other book in all of the world. And why is it unlike any other book in all of the world? Uh, It is because this book is Theopneustos. It is God-breathed. That's what makes it different. God breathed out his truth in order that through it men might come to salvation and in order that by means of it God's people might be transformed. The transformation that takes place is outlined for us there in verse 16. It's useful for doctrine or teaching, for teaching the faith. And that's what we focused on last time. The natural man is spiritually dead. But those of us who are saved by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Now that's a startling statement. We, if we are born again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the mind of Christ. When you become A believer in Jesus, you receive what theologians have chosen to call the ministry of illumination by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and he begins to illuminate the word of God to us and we begin to learn what it teaches. And as we learn what it teaches We apply that to our lives by God's grace and it transforms us. So the scripture is a body of truth which is to control our thinking and our acting. And as you study the word of God and you accumulate this uh, body of truth, then friends it follows or it should follow that the more of this truth that you accumulate, the more shaped to God's standards, your behavior, your conduct becomes. So God brings that word into our lives as believers constantly, systematically, repeatedly, so that the word of Christ may dwell dwell in us, what? Well, there's Rosie. She got it. And all the rest of you said just started to sleep. So, oh, oh, there you are. I'm being told off. There you are. Joyce, 
I know your voice is gone, Joyce, and you couldn't shout it out. Yeah, so it is. Okay, so we have this word that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. That's right. That's why we have it. That it would dwell abundantly, superabundantly, so that we are literally dominated, saturated, filled with this precious word of God, so that our mind is renewed with the word of God, that we may be transformed. What is the work of the word to save? What is the work of the word to teach? And it always accomplishes its purpose when it's mixed with a believing, receiving heart. My friends, we concluded last time by saying that we just can't stop here. Because, as you know and I know, we don't always respond to the word of God the way we should respond to it. So the word also has a ministry of reproof. And a ministry of correction which involves chastening. And it has a ministry of instruction. All with the aim of transforming us. We're reminded in verse 17 that uh, all of this is given to us that we may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so friends for this evening we'll begin with reproof. The word literally means to rebuke, to confront someone with a few toward convicting them of their misbehavior. It's to rebuke someone's misconduct or to rebuke false teaching, to rebuke error, or whatever it may be. Uh, The word that has such a positive ministry, you understand This word that has obviously such a positive ministry, laying a foundation, building us up, equipping us, also has a negative ministry, a ministry of tearing things down. As I said this morning, uh, you know, we have to teach by the negative as well as the positive. And so, beloved, take note of this. The word of God is not just a builder. Now, obviously, it is a builder. Obviously, we do want to be built up in our faith, but it's not just a builder. It is something also that rips and tears and shreds what deserves to be torn down. The Bible has a rebuking ministry, a rebuking effect. And when we get into chapter 4, Um, when we look at the word being sufficient for proclamation uh, it says you know you preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince or reprove same word rebuke exhort and that's the negative sense uh, of ministry that's calling people back from error and the word of God has that effect It has that ministry. Uh, The late uh, Archbishop of uh, Dublin, when Ireland was obviously united back in 1864, Archbishop uh, Richard Trench. He was writing about this 
particular word. And he says it is to rebuke another with such effectual wielding of the victorious arm of the truth so as to bring him, so as to bring someone not always to confession, yet at least to a conviction of his sin. Now, have you got that? The idea here is that the word of God convicts of sin. Yes, the word builds a foundation of truth, but that is also accompanied by the work of conviction. As you listen to the word of God, as you read the word of God, as you study deeply uh, the, the things of God, doesn't it begin to cut away the sin of your life? Doesn't it begin to highlight the sin of your life so that you can confess that sin and forsake it? It transforms your life, doesn't it? So the first rebuking, Reproving work of the word is toward the sin in the life of a person, in the life of a believer. It will work on you in that way. Now, let me show you uh, a text to support that thought. So that's why we read from uh, Hebrews chapter 4 a few moments ago. So if you flick back in your Bibles to Hebrews 4... Um, we broke in at verse 9, but I want you to go to verse 12, a very uh, familiar portion of Scripture. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. So in Hebrews 4, verse 12, the writer refers to the word of God in terms that we are familiar with, in terms that we are used to. He says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So let's just look at that a little bit more deeply. The word of God is alive. The word of God is living. The word of God is powerful or active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the, uh, the word as we know is a weapon. It's definitely pictured as a weapon. It then says, you see it there in verse 12, it pierces deep down into a person's soul, spirit, joints, marrow. Now the picture is very vivid, isn't it, beloved? The word, is God, the word of God is like a huge sword, which is just driven to the core of a person's being slices right through and judges as we're told there the thoughts and the intents of the heart well that's true isn't it every one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ haven't we been cut by the word of God or is it just me have you ever been cut by the word of God? Yeah. We've been, ripped, we've been ripped open by the word of God. You know, maybe you came to church 
some uh, given Sunday and you felt pretty good about yourself. And you went through the doors of this chapel after the sermon and you felt absolutely terrible. You were led bare. You were cut open by the word. We came through the doors of the chapel thinking everything was in order. And when we heard the sermon, that showed everything wasn't in order. And when we were confronted with the word of God that morning, we realized that we came short of what we should be. And our sin was exposed and we were cut up. That's why you see a Bible preaching, a Bible teaching church will never be a haven for those who want to continue in their sin. You know, for those places that say, you know, uh, we, we welcome, you know, sinners, you don't need to change. You just carry on in your sin. person who comes to a Bible-believing church where, you know, the gospel is preached and sin is exposed, they're not going to pile in because they want to continue in their sin. And they don't want to be split open by the word of God every week. They don't want to get cut up. Why do they not want to get cut up? Well, John tells us, doesn't he, in his gospel, John 3, verse 20, those who want to hold on to their sins and stay with their sins, why do they want to do that? Because they don't want to come to the light. Why do they not want to come to the light? Because they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. They don't want to be reproved. They don't want to be rebuked. Why not? Because they love darkness rather than light. And they don't want to be exposed to the cutting power of the living word of God. Now let's follow this along. Look at verse verse 12 and then to verse 13. The word is alive, it's active, it's sharp. Cuts deeply, reveals... The thoughts and the intents of the heart. Verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. Remember what we were looking at on Wednesday evening from Hannah's song in First Samuel chapter 2. The Lord is the God of knowledge. And by him... Actions are wed. Same thought here. This is an agonizing, chilling, distressing, painful verse. God takes his word and he cuts it deep into your heart. And he lays it open. You are fled Skinned alive, if you like. Think of the horribleness of that. And this is what God's word does to us spiritually. It flares us. And here we stand naked before God's eyes. And nothing, nothing is hidden. He sees every single thing about you and about me. We are open to the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. 
Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer uses a most interesting term here. It's not a military term per se, but it was used among soldiers. Let me give you an idea of how it was used. It was used to describe a criminal who had to lift his face and face the crowd as he was marched to his punishment. And the way they did that was interesting. A soldier uh, held a dagger underneath the chin of the, of the person who had been found guilty. And that, of course, forced the criminal to, uh, to hold his head up. And everyone could see, see him as he was paraded to his punishment. Now on news reports today, when someone is arrested or going to court, we often see them, you know, pulling uh, uh, their, their coats over their head. Or maybe a blanket is placed over their head or uh, they'll have their, their face buried into their, uh, you know, the, their arm or their hands are covering their, their, their face uh, because, uh, you know, they don't want to be seen. We you know in some cases that's uh, legitimate. You know, if some person's charged with something innocent until proven guilty, maybe they are innocent. And, uh, you know, they, they don't want the stigma of it. You can understand some of it in that respect. But we, we know there's a certain amount of shame and stigma and guilt uh, associated with you know, being found guilty of a heinous crime. And they knew that in the first century also. And they wanted the criminal to have to face uh, the whole community. They wanted the, uh, the world to see his face. So they rammed that little dagger underneath the chin. And if the person, you know, lowered his chin to hide his shame from the viewing public... It would probably have been very painful, at least maybe fatal, depending on how uh, uh, excitable the Roman soldier maybe was with his sword. But uh, you see how the writer of Hebrews is using, in a very real sense, this uh, this picture. This is what is what God God does. This is what the Word of God does. It jams its pierced points right up onto your chin and makes you face up to the reality of who you are. It reminds us that God knows all things and is able to see exactly what you look like. It reveals us to ourselves. It reveals us to the eyes of him who knows everything about us. Everything is open before him. You can't hide. I can't hide anything from God. That's what the word of God will do. The word is a reprover. The word is a rebuker. The word is a convictor of sin. It sifts. It analyzes. It reveals emotions, attitudes, and thoughts. As I say... You've experienced that, beloved, haven't you? 
as you've said under the searching ministry of the word, as you sit down and you read through God's word and you read about, you know, uh, certain things in scripture, certain characters or whatever. You know, we have just finished a, a series on the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. A series in the fruit of the Spirit is announced. And uh, maybe you went into that series thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good on, on most of those. And on the things that I'm not. Well, I think I'll just need a little touch up here and there. Are you kidding me? I don't know about you. But that series cut me wide open. Cut me wide open doing it, preparing it. Cut me wide open preaching it. All of these things, this fruit exposed. Where is it in my life? Is there even a modicum of it? This cutting us wide open before God. Before my own eyes, each of those fruits cut us open to the heart. Well, cut me open to the heart. That's what the word works through the word. That's what God works through the word. Let me tell you something, beloved. You ought to thank God just as much for the reproving work of the word as much as for the building up part of it. You ought to be just as eager to be reproved by the word as you are to be instructed and built up by the word. You ought to be just as eager to have your sin exposed as you are to have some great truth and principle taught to you that you can apply in your life. Why? Because if you're truly God's child, what do you hunger after? You hunger and you thirst after righteousness. And exposure of sin should be a welcome process. It's a bitter process, isn't it? A bitter sweet experience. You know, to sit under the word and say, you come through the doors of the chapel feeling, yeah, pretty good. And then the word of God just rips you open. It's a better experience. And you go out and you pray about it and you're cut to the heart and you say, yes, Lord, thank you for exposing that in my life. Help me to get the grips with it. And you get the victory over it. And that is such a sweet experience. So we can rejoice That in the perfecting of the man of God, the word of God will save. The word of God will teach the principles of truth. And the word of God will convict and reprove. Not only reprove sin, but it will also reprove error. That's what the, that is what the word, uh, that is the word not only reproves sin in the life of an individual, but it also Uh, reproves false teaching and error. 
If you know the scripture, then you can recognize error. It's not the case. Uh, if you know the Bible, aren't you able to recognize false teaching? Because the scripture is the test, isn't it? The scripture is the standard. The scripture is the measure by which all teaching must be measured. And so if you know the Bible and someone comes along teaching something, you're able to say here, hold on a moment. That's not what I read in the Bible. Whatever it is that comes down the path and claims to be the truth needs only to be compared with the word of God in order for it to be validated. We know that cults twist scripture. They add to scripture. They have to mess with scripture. Why do they have to mess with the standard of scripture in order to justify what they do? The word of God is the standard. It is the plumb line against uh, which the straightness or the crookedness of anything is measured. And so those who come along with lies and with deceit and with false teaching inevitably must twist and or add to the scriptures to justify what they claim to be the truth. They are, says the Apostle Paul, guilty. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, guilty of peddling yeah, the word of God. You know, they peddle it. Uh, they don't uh, present it truthfully. They twist it. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, they handle the word of God deceitfully. You know, they, they peddle it, they handle it deceitfully. They do not properly explain it and affirm it. Now let me show you briefly from the Old Testament what I mean by that. If you go back to uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Uh, As you know, this psalm has so much to say about Scripture. 176 verses and every single one of them is about scripture. I just want to draw your attention to uh, three of them. So, uh, Psalm 119, verse 99. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 99. It says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Again, what a statement. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? You see what he says? For your testimonies... Are my meditation. Look at the hundredth verse. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I know more than anybody else because I know your word, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So you're way ahead of your teachers, way ahead of the aged. Why, says the psalmist, because I know your word. The first 104, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hit every false way. I can recognize a false way. How can I recognize a false way? Because I know your word. I have understanding from your word. And so as you build up the knowledge of the word of God, it will reprove your sin and it will expose error. 
That's its reproving work. It reproves sin, it reproves error. Remember uh, last month when we looked at Isaiah chapter 8 uh, by way of introduction as we went into uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah in the lead up to Christmas. Isaiah 8 verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. It's not that there's some light in them, a bit of light in them. Isaiah says, if they don't speak according to this word, there's no light in them. They're in darkness. You know, you could, you could go to the best of the Russell Group universities in the nation. And if you know the word of God, you will know vastly more than all the professors and lecturers combined. And whatever they tell you, you will be able to discern and know every false way that they are trying to articulate and peddle because you know the truth. Beloved, it's a a marvelous thing that God has done, isn't it? Reducing everything to this book. And to master this book is to master every dimension of life. Why were the Berean Christians in Acts 17 more noble than anyone else? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't just buy anything coming from the lips of the mighty apostle Paul or the apostles for that matter. They searched the scriptures. They didn't want to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. They didn't want to be carried about by the cunning craftiness of those who lie and wait to deceive. The word of God was their standard, and beloved, it should be our standard as well. So, we'll be transformed as we are reproved. And secondly, we'll be transformed when we are corrected. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. And you say, well, hold on a minute, Billy. You know, what's this? You've already been mentioning all of that under reproof for the past 20 minutes or so. What's the difference? Well, Scripture not only exposes Sin as to its reality not only exposes error, but get this, it has the ability to correct both. Now, this is the only time in Scripture that this word is used, the particular Greek word that's used here, it's the only time it's used in Scripture. It's not used anywhere else, and so it's hard to compare its use. So taking it at its face value, exactly what the word means. It literally means to straighten, to lift you up, to straighten you up. So we're getting into the building aspect of it now. What happens? The word of God comes along, it cuts you to ribbons, slays you, flays you, exposes you to, you know, whatever. You know, it shows up the false belief, the false teaching. And then the word of God, after it has fled you, 
rip you open. It picks you up. It doesn't just leave you there. You know, like Humpty Dumpty in a thousand pieces and nobody can put you back together again. It picks you up and it straightens and it sets you back on your feet. And so you go out sometimes feeling miserable because the word of God cut me to the heart. But it didn't leave you in the gutter. As you reflected upon it and you prayed about it, it picked you up and put you on your foot and you said, I'm a better person now because God has worked in my life. It has that ability to straighten your conduct, to thoroughly restore you to an upright position. That is what the word means. Do you understand, friends? Let me repeat it. It just just doesn't split you open, let you lie there, it puts you back together again. It imparts truth, exposes error, but it will also transform your behavior. If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, then we will proclaim the Scripture in such a way that it teaches the faith and that it reproves and rebukes, rebukes error. Not that we or would want to become like those whose agenda in life it is to be constantly, you know, searching out error and turn our exposition of the scriptures into nothing other than simply taking the high road. You know, we are better than everybody else and pointing out that that chap's wrong and that chap's wrong and that church wrong and well, don't we get it all right? You know, we end up doing that every week. We'll turn out to be cantankerous rascals like. And that's not what you want. And that's certainly not what the Paul's referring to when he writes to Timothy. He is saying that in the balance of the exposition of Scripture, not only will people be engendered to love the Lord Jesus Christ more, And stirred to a renewed commitment to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But they will also have their lives brought in line with the truth of God's word. Errors in belief, errors in behavior must be pointed out. And must be pointed out in a spirit of love and genuine kindness. Paul, if you read the pastoral epistles, is very willingly, he's very willing to identify the dangers, very willing to identify the deceivers, because he understands how crucial it is that um, not only is the faith taught, but that error is rebuked and correction takes place. So, beloved, it's Not enough for a pastor to be warning of the wrong faith. He needs to be directing into the right paths also. And so what's the key to this? Well, I would say it's uh, simply expository preaching. You You start at the beginning of a book and you work your way through it. I'm not saying there's no place for topical sermons. You know, obviously, you've come through a little topical series with uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We're doing a little topical series at the minute on the ordinances. But the danger is, you, know, if you see, if you just preach topically, the tendency is, you know, you just 
preach, preach, you just preach what comes easiest. Or uh, you, you, you preach your hobby horses. And uh, see, when you go through the book in an expository fashion, you have to tackle the hard bits. You know, uh, you can't neglect the broccoli or the cauliflower or the turnips or the Brussels sprouts when you preach in an expository manner. You have to dish it all up. See this young man sitting in front of me here? He's a fussy eater, you know. See, when he's around at the house, he pushes, what is it you push to the side of the plate? Mushrooms. And your, and, and, and uh, what do you call them, peppers? Yeah. Oh, he's not his own, like, you know, the dean, she pushes the peas to the side of the plate. And I push the Brussels sprouts to the side of the plate. But you've got to eat the lot when it comes to the word of God. Because it builds you up. You just can't push it to the side of the plate. You have to cover the whole counsel of God, Brussels sprouts and all. Because it makes you the man and the woman that God called you to be. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how it reproves and how it corrects. Thank you that your word uh, teaches us and builds us up. <laughs> Sometimes it tears us apart, Lord. And uh, we thank you for that. But Lord, we asked that you would help us to reflect upon everything that we hear and to go back to Scripture, to search the Scriptures, and to see if these things are so. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless, bless us as uh, we sing this final hymn. And as we go to our homes, take us there safely. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.